0: Hey, good morning, Menlo Church. I'm back. You can call back the search team. It's looking for me somewhere. Uh, Good to see you. So glad that you are spending some of your weekend with us in community, whether it's at one of our campuses around the Bay Area in Saratoga, Mountain View, Menlo Park, or San Mateo, or maybe you're joining us online. We uh, are so glad that you're here. We've been in a series that we've called The Rest of the Story, Uh, where we are looking at the faith that many of us grew up with, and without realizing it, some grew out of along the way. That our flannel graph faith, it just didn't hold up to our maturing and growing life. The good news is that the rest of the stories that we've been learning, it can help us to see how our faith can grow with us. And that the God we learned about as kids can actually... Stand up to the adult questions and difficult challenges of your life. See, before we get started, I hope that for all of us, maybe over the course of this series, you've seen these individual stories and you've been challenged about the way you think about them. But over the next few weeks, we are going to look at some bigger themes and people uh, that demand some specific attention beyond just individual stories. And today, We're going to start with kind of a biggie. But before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. And if you've never been here before or never heard me speak, uh, I pray kneeling. And the reason that I do that, as we're going to see in just a minute, is that God is bigger than any of us in every way possible. And our posture as we come before his word and what he might have to say for us is always, should always be humility. Would you pray with me? God, thank you. Thank you so much. That no matter what we brought in with us, no matter what's waiting for us after this, you are here. And God, no matter what skepticism we have, whether we're followers of you or not, no matter what questions we bring, you are big enough and strong enough to take them. Would you help us, God, be bold enough to try? It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So as a little kid with lots of challenges in my life, I was an easy target for bullies. And I can remember getting mocked and ridiculed for my stutter, for my size, for whatever someone with low self-esteem and high social capital wanted to point out in me as a small child. And I remember getting shoved into lockers. I remember being made fun of. And I came up with ways to avoid those people and places until basically I had made it out of that season of my life. And I would just say this, if you're facing bullying in person or virtually, talk to someone. I suffered those seasons of my life in silence, but you don't have to. And maybe that's a a prayer team at the end of a service at your campus, or maybe that's a volunteer in our student ministry environments. Maybe it's your student director. Uh, You can get help. It's available to you. But here's why I say all of that. If you were given a flannel graph faith, then you probably only heard the stories where God showed up with violence, conflict, and war in ways that seemed justifiable. But as you grew up, this probably seemed more and more difficult to believe. Now, before I go further, let me mention something that um, I'm not gonna get graphic into any of these descriptions, but I will be talking directly about the types of violence and war that we see in the Hebrew Scriptures, or what we often call the Old Testament. And if you need to log off or to step out and process this later or help your child process it later, I totally understand and want to let you know what's coming. Now, not every conflict seems provoked when we find it in the pages of Scriptures. And some of the actions that God takes or asks Israel to take seem at odds with the loving character that we see in Jesus. And maybe somewhere along the way, you have wondered, is the God of the Old Testament a bully? Or maybe you found yourself believing that Jesus is the kind of God that you want to love and follow, but you're a little nervous to meet his dad. Now, just to add a little bit of fuel to the fire, here is a brief list of some of the things we see God condone or command in the Old Testament. We see the great flood, as we talked about a few weeks ago, and depending on your view, all of humanity was eliminated but one family. Sodom and Gomorrah, an entire city, was leveled except for one couple. The plagues of Egypt were brought with increasing judgment to deliver God's people. The Canaanite conquest, where God delivers his people from place to place, often with great casualties. The destruction of Jericho in Joshua 6 were the walls, come falling down. Samson's rampage where a thousand men were killed. The destruction of the Assyrians where an angel kills 185,000 soldiers in one night. Penalties in the law of Moses where God issues death penalties for things like blasphemy and adultery. So welcome to church, right? (laughs) Now I know that for some of you, just saying that stuff has released a bunch of pressure that you have felt in the tension of your faith because you knew that all that stuff or a big part of that stuff was in your Bible, but you weren't sure I knew. (laughs) And for others of you, I just put a bunch of tension in your faith because you a long time ago just led with a level of cognitive dissonance and you are like, I'm just not gonna think about it. I'm not going to let my mind go there. But here's the thing, the good news is that God can handle our questions. And faithful men and women have been exploring these topics in thoughtful and intellectually honest ways for millennia. With that in mind, I want to give you two resources to pursue after this message if you're really interested in further study or if this kind of unlocks something for you in your own faith development, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not. The first is a book called Nonviolence, The Revolutionary Way of Jesus by Preston Sprinkle. In it, Preston breaks down all these challenging passages one by one, and some of the bigger reasons that God used them in the Old Testament and showed up this way that seems so different than the way of Jesus. The second is a two-part series from Gregory Boyd called The Crucifixion of the Warrior God. Now, I don't agree with everything in either book, but I think that they present compelling cases for ways to think about and understand these stories in the bigger story of the Scriptures. Now, here's my overall point. Here's the thing that I hope you hear today, the way that I see and understand some of these complex and seemingly contradictory aspects of God's character and nature in the stories of the scriptures, especially the Hebrew scriptures. See, God's story uses violence so our story can have peace. It took one to give you and me the other. It's not an accident. See, for every story in this series, we have asked the question, is it true? And that feels like a really important question as we consider these moments of conflict, law, loss, and pain in these passages. There are a range of views with all of them, and just like we've seen elsewhere, there are followers of Jesus that hold to all of these views. The most vocal of these views include historical fiction which is that these stories are simply told for the sake of principles, but they don't conform to truth proven in archaeology or modern science. This view seems possible given certain stories of the Old Testament where we don't have archaeological or historic hard evidence that these things existed. But there are also stories that are very difficult to believe, but we do have archaeological evidence to support the biblical narrative we find. And so it becomes very difficult to have that as a consistent view throughout all of Scripture. The next view is that God is actually showing uh, this kind of cultural language of the day. And therefore, violence was required to preserve his chosen people, Israel, this nation that he had a divine plan for, to save all of mankind, that Jesus would come through the lineage of the Jewish people, through the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, the next view is sort of a spin-off of that, that God actually showed relative mercy to a pre-law, tribalistic world to preserve Israel, and that what we see as extreme was actually, in many cases at the time, merciful, a merciful way in which a nation was able to turn back, to at least be spared momentary judgment. When we hear passages like an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth, we think to ourselves, that sounds brutal. But at the time, that was merciful. That was a way of saying, let's make sure that the punishment fits the crime in a way that other nations didn't reflect. See, the final view that I think a lot of us, if we grew up in church, grew up with was this tension that when we brought this question up, we heard some version of this answer. God said it, that settles it. And you weren't allowed to ask any more questions. And I hope that that's never the response we provide in this community. So you remember all of these views, you can still follow Jesus. And all of these views have underneath them a hermeneutic or a way that we study the Bible. And if your understanding of the way that God does this and the way God leverages conflict, war, and violence, especially in the Old Testament, if you don't feel any tension about your understanding of that, My guess is you have some more wrestling to do. And I know that this is a lot. I know it's a lot to take in and to process. It's why for a lot of us, we simply look away. It's why for a lot of us, we disconnect from these kinds of expressions of anger and justice in the Old Testament, because they deeply disrupt our modern understanding of peace and kindness from God, which are not inaccurate. They're just inadequate. There is more to God than that. God's full character is worth considering because if he is this big, if he is this complex, if he is this powerful, then we need to understand what we are saying yes to, who we are committing to worship with our lives. It's why God speaks these words through his prophet Isaiah. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are are far beyond anything you can imagine. When I was in my undergraduate years at a Bible college, I I remember learning some difficult things and ideas about God for the very first time. And I can remember God bringing this passage to mind and laying awake at night in my bunk and feeling this question deep in my soul. Will I worship God as he has revealed himself or as my imagination Has invented him. And here's the problem. None of us think that the God we worship is the God we've invented. We don't do it wholesale. We do it one inch at a time. We just move God little by little by little from the version that he's revealed himself to be to one that we find easier and more palatable to absorb, one that no longer offends us or inflicts on our sensibilities or carries the stigma we feel comes with being a follower of Jesus at home or at school or at work. But we must be careful with how we answer that question because it is easy to lose the plot of the bigger story of Scripture. And it is easy to ask God to submit to our intellect rather than we submit to His intention for our world and our lives. One of them has power and authority. One does not. Remember I told you God's story uses violence, so our story, so your story, can have peace, real, lasting peace. The next question that we should ask, and really we've been asking all summer, is what is the big story? And how does that big story fit into the picture we have of how God relates to people and groups in the Hebrew Scripture? What does the whole idea of it look like? If you aren't a follower of Jesus and someone in your life has tried to use Scripture to help you understand what they believe, I'm guessing that they probably didn't ask you to start at the beginning of the Bible. They probably told you to start in one of the inspired biographies of Jesus' life, like Matthew or John. This approach, it actually reflects this understanding that today, we experience the Bible, including the Old Testament, from the middle out. That the person and work of Jesus makes the rest come into better focus. The Old Testament book of Numbers would be a difficult faith conversation starter, right? Like we can all agree to that. The Bible college that I went to, it had a key verse that helped us to remember what it was we were doing there and why the Bible was so helpful. It read, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So God wants to shape us with his word. He wants to change us, not for us to change him. And he shows that even more clearly because he used frail, fickle, and fallen people to write these very words. The story has often been broken down, this bigger story of scripture into creation fall, redemption, and restoration. Those ideas, really that as the table of contents, is not just true of individual stories, of these tense moments that we read about in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's actually the table of contents for the big story of Scripture as well. The creation of the world was made without sin, but the fall took place when Adam and Eve chose to disobey, and ultimately, God used this nation, Israel, as a chosen people to bring about the earthly ministry of Jesus, to redeem mankind by offering salvation to everyone who would choose him. From that moment 2,000 years ago, we have been working for the restoration of the world around us by living as thoughtful witnesses for a different kingdom, different than the one we see with our eyes. And one day, God will restore all of creation for the forever union We were made for creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Because of that big story and the stakes that it has for all of us, the small stories and the pain they involve begin to take shape. God used war and violence to preserve his chosen nation so that Jesus' ministry would be fulfilled. And I know that's uncomfortable. Tim Mackey, we've talked about before from the Bible Project, he puts it this way. He says, we don't want a God that chooses sides or has a preferred nation. We would prefer God to be like the UN, parachuting relief packets of salvation into every place equally. But that's not the God of the Jesus story. That's not how he works. And here's where the rubber meets the road. If you were God, and I just want to make sure you know this, you're not. If you were God, how would you have done it? Here's the problem. The problem is that for many of us, the way we begin thinking about how we would answer that question assumes a lot. We assume that the ancient world looks a lot like our world does today. And while our world is far from perfect, it is serene compared to the realities of the world of the Hebrew Scriptures, especially compared to the West. In his book, The Air We Breathe, how we all came to believe in freedom, kindness, progress, and equality. Glenn Scribner points out all the cultural assumptions that we make all the time that are rooted in the work of the church over the last 2,000 years. He's not defending abuses. He's communicating the uses of this group of people and the way God has shown up. So if you take that impact away, if you pull it all back, you will find societies in a pre-law tribalistic world without a common language without a common culture and where they were all simply fighting to survive there was no geneva convention there was no nato there was no u.n nations rose and fell from groups that fought without rules and without reason that was the world that god was defending his nation israel in the middle of if the god of the hebrew scriptures was a pacifist then none of us would be a christian Because Jesus' lineage would have had to have been broken. And God's covenant agreement with Israel would have meant nothing. In order for the plan to ultimately work its way out, it required the protection and the provision of Israel. We just got back from some time away as a family, uh, which I'm super thankful for and really appreciate the kindness of many of you reaching out and praying for us and encouraging our family to get actually this exact kind of rest in this season. But the problem is that uh, Alyssa and I are the parents, so family vacation is a little bit of a misnomer, right? Like our kids went on a vacation, we went on a trip. That's how it works. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure if you asked our kids, especially the younger ones, they would tell you they understand how the trip happened. They understand the work that was involved. They even helped a lot. But the truth is that it was really a working vacation for Alyssa and me, from planning to paying to packing, and that was all before we left. Once we were on the trip, we had to forecast what their energy level would be, what requirements were necessary for each activity, if we had enough water and sunscreen, how to navigate a four-year-old constantly demanding more sugar. Those were just invisible things to our kids, but to us, they were constant juggling acts that we lived every day, In light of. And I know that we're not God, and just a reminder, neither are you. But I think that this is a microscopic sense of how God relates to you and me. How he anticipates needs that we can't possibly see or imagine. How he does things that we don't see or even know are necessary to protect and provide for our ultimate needs in him because he sees our eternal needs. In a world and a kingdom we can't see, not just our temporary wants for what's in front of us. See, remember, God's story, it it uses violence so our story can have peace, not just temporary peace or the lack of violence in a moment, but the peace that comes only after conquering the sinful sickness of the world and the cosmic reality brought on by the initial and perpetual rebellion of humankind. That's the kind of peace that God was securing for you and me. But one final disclaimer that I want to make is that not all wars are created equal. This is, important, um, this is important because while there are plenty of passages that bring tension to our understanding of God and how he shows up in the Old Testament versus the New Testament, there are also atrocities that are descriptive and not prescriptive. Here's what I mean. The way the Bible works, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, is that it shares the God-given ideal, and then it shows the painfully present real throughout. One easy place to spot this difference is how the Bible talks about marriage. In Genesis 2.24, we read, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. But then, Two chapters later, Lamach is described as being married to two women. The text is not condoning it. Author of Genesis didn't forget two chapters ago. It's just simply describing what took place. Because of how the New Testament works and how lots of us, our faith was formed a lot in study around the New Testament, we want immediate commentary in moments like that. We want commentary on this clear violation of the original design for marriage, but that's not how narrative works. They described the ideal, and then they showed the real. It requires us to look at and study each story in the context of the big story. And for some people, the need to do this with instances of war, violence, polygamy, political entrenchment, and religious manipulation, that need undercuts your faith. But from my perspective, it actually serves to reinforce my faith, that only an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, and perfectly judging God could deal with us, frankly. There's no sugarcoating. There's no trying to smooth it out. All the imperfections are visible, and God still works in the imperfect to make you and me perfect. So why would God do all this? Why would he get his hands so historically dirty to preserve this relatively small nation of Israel? Why does it matter this much? Well, I'm going to answer those questions with three uncomfortable truths. But here's the thing. Before I do that, let me make sure I break down the peace that God wants for you first. It's not to delay the destruction or avoid the judgment. It's for the deliverance from the destruction and judgment that we all deserve. You're like, who are you talking to? I'm talking to you. All of us deserve this. If you've never heard this word before, the word gospel, or in Greek where it was originally written euangelion, it means the good news. And the good news of the gospel is that God loves you and me so much that even though we rebelled and are rebelling against God, he keeps loving us that he loved you so much that he sent his only son to live a perfect life, offer a perfect death, and come back in a perfect resurrection to offer you perfect eternal life. That peace forever with him, it's possible for anyone who chooses to turn from their way, believe and receive the gift that's possible from Jesus and choose to follow his ways all the days of their life. Could God have done this another way? Probably. He's God. (laughs) But he didn't ask me. And I'm glad he intervened because he would have had every justifiable reason not to. With that in mind, let me leave you with these three uncomfortable truths as we finish our time together. The first one gets used as a Christian cliche at times when it's not always helpful, but it is actually true theologically, which is that God uses everything. There isn't an event in your life or the world in general that caught God off guard. Some of you came in this week and you found yourself at the end of an incredible week. Some of you, it was an incredibly painful week. This doesn't mean that God wants death, pain, disease, or suffering. But in a world marked by sin, he allows those things and he uses them for a bigger purpose and a bigger plan. We may not always understand what that plan is, but we can trust that he has one because of his track record and character. The classic passage for this comes from Romans 8, 28, where Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And if you're not a Christian, here's the thing. God is still using circumstances in your life too, maybe even to draw you into a relationship with him. Which leads me to my second point. The second uncomfortable truth from this conversation is that salvation isn't fair. We would have all conducted this operation differently to save humanity. Everyone in every room across Menlo right now, everybody watching online, we probably all have a different version of how we would have approached this. But just a reminder, we're not God. I know it's a surprise. You aren't smart enough. I'm not good enough. We didn't figure out the gospel. Jesus worked in your life and worked in my life, if you're a follower of Jesus, to reveal himself to us. None of us deserved it. None of us figured it out. That should deeply humble us. As a matter of fact, the New Testament, it says, God uses the foolish of this world to confound the wise. It's on purpose that he used you and me. And finally... Judgment isn't ours. Judgment is brought from God every day in small ways and big ways. But it is all simply a down payment on the perfect permanent judgment that God will eventually bring. Especially if you're a Christian, we need to listen particularly to this one. As Christians, here's our job. We are to hold other Christians accountable to God's character, nature, and judgments while we pay close attention to our own lives. And you know what we're supposed to do with non-Christians? You know how we're supposed to judge them? We're not. We're just supposed to love them. As a matter of fact, in his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul says it this way. He says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? In parentheses, assumed answer, none of my business. Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those inside outside. We flip this all the time, don't we? Some of you, I just broke your theology. Because you're amazing at policing your non-Christian neighbors and co-workers, asking them to follow a set of standards to follow God that they've never said yes to. And then you have some followers of Jesus that are in your life that you love and love you, and they are living crazy lives. And you're like, well, I don't want to judge them. The Bible would say it's opposite day in your spiritual life because you should flip those two, right? Right? Now, I know that this is all a lot. I know that this with it brings for many of us the beginning of a new conversation, that there are aspects of who God has revealed himself to be that if we're honest, we need to start unpacking. We need to go grab one of those books. We need to maybe listen to another message on this subject. We need to have a conversation after this. But here's what I sincerely hope. (laughs) I sincerely hope that you will take the time to discover the complexities and infinite capabilities of the actual God of the universe, not the God of your imagination. And if the God of the universe and the God of your imagination are different, you should choose the God of the universe. That's the one that really has power to help you. That's the one that reigns and rules forever. That's the one who offers you salvation. That's the one who offers you abundant life now and eternal life waiting. And it means that there may be parts of the way you've thought about God that need to change. And that's part of what growing our faith up with us is all about. Can I pray for you? God, as we think about the pressures and challenges that each one of us carry into our day today, into the week ahead of us, And we've we've spent so much of our time and energy avoiding some of these very events and moments of your word because we didn't know what to do with them. But God, whatever ones are floating to our mind right now, whatever difficult image it is to look at, to think about, to put ourselves in that spot, would you remind us that you did that because of your great plan to redeem humanity? And while we would have done it differently... And while it may offend or affect our sensibilities, God, it's us who are to submit to you, not the other way around. As we sing to you, God, increase our appreciation. As we live for you this week, God, give us a picture of who you are that is bigger than we can comprehend, because that's a much more accurate picture of who you are. God, we give this time to you. We're thankful for the breath we have to offer. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.